Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or SleepNumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi there, history friends. Just a very brief reminder that this podcast is on Twitter. And if you would like to follow when Diplomacy Fails at WDF Podcast and join the 1,200 other people who are following us at the moment, then that'll be super appreciated, and it's a great way to spread the word about this show for absolutely free. If you're not on Twitter, well, maybe just make a Twitter just so you can follow me. Well, hey, I'm not selfish, forcing you to set up a Twitter account just for my own benefit. Twitter is a great way to contact me, to stay in touch with what I'm doing, and to also engage in some pretty cool history discussion. Every single day I'll have some kind of on-this-day history post talking to you about what happened in history, X amount of years ago, so if that sounds interesting to you, do check that out. I also talk about other things, everything ranging from Brexit to how much I love dogs. So how could you resist such a wonderful ploy as that? 
That again, at DWDF Podcast. You can search for When Diplomacy Fails in Twitter itself, or just simply click on the link in the description below. Those of you that have Twitter and are listening to this podcast right now, do please follow me. You can probably just literally set that up on your phone as you're listening to this. But those of you that don't have Twitter, thanks for putting up with me as I plug literally every single way that you can follow this show. Maybe listening to me every single flaming day is enough for you and you don't need all these other ways to get in touch and stay up to date with what we're doing. But if Twitter is your thing and if absorbing still more history coming from When Diplomacy Fails sounds like fun, then do check that out. Otherwise, thanks and enjoy this episode. Listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 52. Today is the 5th of April 2019, and over this period in history, 100 years ago, occurred the following events. We saw in the last episode that an eruption had occurred between the American president and the French premier. This eruption, we learned, was a result of the intractable differences between the French wishes to acquire some measure of security along the Rhine by taking or occupying portions of the region, and by Woodrow Wilson's strict opposition to this plan, on the basis that it was both unfair and likely to lead to problems in the future. This moment is seen by historians as a kind of turning point in Franco-American relations, and even Harold Nicholson recorded it in his diary that day, which testifies to the fact that the dust-up was common knowledge among the delegations at Paris. Nicholson's reference to the event was short and sweet, as the Foreign Office clerk noted simply, I gather that there has been a great crisis all week, as, between Lloyd George and Clemenceau, the French want the Rhine frontier as their bulwark against Germany, we refuse to give it to them. There is marked atmosphere of strain and tension. Harold Nicholson unusually had gotten it wrong in this case, though. The dispute was between Wilson and Clemenceau, not the British and French premiers. Perhaps Nicholson was only acting on established presumptions about who would jump down whose throat first. House himself expressed that, I am sorry it should have happened to the President rather than Lloyd George, which strongly hints that it was equally possible for an Anglo-French dispute to erupt at any moment. Typically enough, Edward House was in no way subject to such brevity, though his account is worth examining for that exact reason. We should remember that House wasn't present at the Council of Four, where the dispute had taken shape, and he learned of it second-hand. Not even the President's best friend would be allowed into that privileged room, at least not yet. House wrote, It seems that the long-expected row between either Clemenceau and the President, or Lloyd George and Clemenceau, had finally come. I'm sorry it should have happened to the President rather than Lloyd George. They came near calling one another names. The trouble arose over the question of the western boundaries and of the Tsar Valley. 
The president told Clemenceau that the French were bringing up territorial questions that had nothing to do with the war aims of anybody and that no one had heard of their intentions to annex the Tsar Valley until after the armistice had been signed. Clemenceau grew angry at this and said that the president favoured the Germans. The president replied that such a statement was untrue and that Clemenceau knew it was. Clemenceau then stated that if they did not receive the Tsar Valley, he would not sign the Treaty of Peace. To this, the president replied, Then if France does not get what she wishes, she will refuse to act with us. In that event, do you wish me to return home? Clemenceau answered, I do not wish you to go home, but I intend to do so myself. And in a moment he left the room. George said that the president was very angry. It gave Lloyd George a wholesome respect for the president, which I augmented by telling him that he was the most difficult man I ever knew when aroused. That his anger was not like his, George's, or mine, quick to come and quick to go, but that it remained permanently and he would never get over this morning's scene. Wilson had stood his ground, but the experience was a strike against his calm disposition and unsteady health. Emotional moments like these also interrupted the flow of negotiations, which was especially unfortunate at this sensitive stage. The unsteadiness inherent in the President's health was a natural outcome of the fractious trip home to the United States. We have noted before that the President returned a changed man, as he was viewed as differently as he felt. What we have not properly considered, though, was the fact that even before he returned to the United States on the 14th of February, Wilson had fully expected that trip to be a difficult and draining one, but as he confessed to Joseph Tumulty, his private secretary, for over a decade, he felt he had no other choice but to go. If it would save the League of Nations, then it was worth sacrificing his health over. Tumulty remembered of that time. One day, after Democratic senators had been urging the Western trip, I took leave to say to the President that, in his condition, disastrous consequences might result if he should follow their advice. But he dismissed my solicitude, saying in a weary way, I know that I am at the end of my tether, but my friends on the hill say that the trip is necessary to save the treaty, and I am willing to make whatever personal sacrifices required, for if the treaty should be defeated, God only knows what would happen to the world as a result of it. In the presence of the great tragedy which now faces the world, no decent man can count his own personal fortunes in the reckoning. Even though in my condition it might mean the giving up of my life, I will gladly make the sacrifice to save the treaty. He spoke like a soldier who was ready to make the supreme sacrifice to save the cause that lay closest to his heart. As I looked at the President while he was talking, in my imagination I made a comparison between the man... Woodrow Wilson, who now stood before me, and the man I had met many years before in New Jersey. In those days he was a vigorous, agile, slender man, active and alert, his hair but slightly streaked with grey. Now, as he stood before me discussing the necessity for the western trip, he was an old man, grown greyer and greyer, but grimmer and grimmer in his determination, like an old warrior, to fight to the end. It is important to note the negative impact upon the President's health which this experience had, because it helps to explain Wilson's gradual deterioration afterwards. There was no standout moment when Wilson was suddenly laid low. Instead, it was a successive series of hard knocks, which chipped away at his mental and physical health. By the end of this episode, as we'll see, these knocks were sufficient to take Wilson out of the conference due to health reasons for the first time. We have seen before that few presidents in history have had their health examined and speculated upon as much as Woodrow Wilson, with everything from a Freudian analysis to an assessment of his childhood, 
to an intensive focus on his debilitating strokes, all doing the rounds. It could be argued that this fight with Clemenceau in late March was the first hard knock, but in fact Wilson was unquestionably damaged and exhausted upon his return from the United States in mid-March 1919. This spat with Clemenceau merely confirmed that things had changed and become less warm between the two as the conference progressed, but both men were chronically exhausted by the first week of April. It is easy to forget that Clemenceau had been the victim of a traumatic assassination attempt only a month before. Clemenceau would like that his peers forgot about it altogether, as he did his utmost to harness all of his powers to maintain the facade. Underneath the facade, though, the Premier was not the same as he once was. What was more, Clemenceau seems, at least in early April, to have wholly embraced this grudge against Wilson, whereas before he had remained balanced in his distrust for both the British and American leaders. Clemenceau also made little effort to hide his preference for dealing with House rather than Wilson, a feeling he made plain in gleeful expressions on the 5th of April when Wilson had taken to his bed. He is worse today, the Frenchman exclaimed, before adding an especially bad taste. Do you know his doctor? Couldn't you get round and bribe him? Wilson returned the favour, though, reporting to his doctor from his sick bed that I have been doing a lot of thinking, thinking what would be the outcome of the world if these French politicians were given a free hand and allowed to have their way and secure all that they claim France is entitled to. My opinion is that if they had their way, the world would go to pieces in a short while. As if to echo the views of Tumulti, according to Wilson's press aide, he looked greyer and grimmer all the time. And his press aide added, I have never seen Wilson so irritated, so thoroughly in a rage. He characterises the attitude of the French and the delays as damnable. One imagines that if minor individuals such as these were able to get a handle on the President's mood, Clemenceau must have known the extent of Wilson's feelings too. But Clemenceau expressed no remorse. In fact, it suited him for Wilson to be absent, while the adults talked about realistic statecraft. The French Premier made no attempt either to censor the French newspapers, which continued to lampoon the President and Pierce's thin skin. Just fancy, one French newspaper imagined Wilson saying, I have discovered that spring always follows winter. Wilson told Lloyd George, in what the Prime Minister called a violent explosion, that he would never sign a French peace and would go home rather than do so. At this point, a line seems to have been crossed. Woodrow Wilson resolutely refused to deal with Clemenceau any longer, and he noted to his doctor that he wished the George Washington, that vessel which had brought him here, to be prepared at Brest. The President was taking his ball and he was going home. News of the President's requests to prepare the boat home had leaked out the following day on the 6th of April, as Wilson no doubt expected they would. It is difficult to assess whether Wilson genuinely wished to go home, or whether the entire act was a ploy designed to frighten the French Premier and his supporters. Certainly, the threat was taken seriously enough in private, even if in public Clemenceau and others put on a brave, almost mocking face, and talked about going home to mother. Wilson acts like a cook, Clemenceau joked on one occasion, who keeps her trunk ready in the hallway. Every day he threatens to leave. But by the time the words had left Clemenceau's mouth, the French Premier had already worked to heal some of the damage. The French press began reporting that France had no intention of annexing territory inhabited by the Germans. Clemenceau also ensured that Wilson no longer became a subject for ridicule in the press, at least for now.
A likely reason for Clemenceau's notable reduction in patience with Wilson was the fact that his own domestic situation had become far less secure. Initially cast as the father of victory, Clemenceau discovered that the French public and press were impatient for a peace settlement which would secure the triumph, and which would secure French security into the future. What this guarantee looked like depended on whom one asked, but it was increasingly coming to mean the Rhineland. This historically torn region of Europe became the rallying cry of the French right, who found their figurehead and champion in Marshal Ferdinand Foch. We have noted a few times that Clemenceau sided against Foch publicly in the Supreme War Council and Council of Ten Gatherings, and Foch's emerging profile as an opposition figure may help to explain this. But President Poincaré was a problem as well. Neither man was ever happy playing second fiddle to Clemenceau, Both wanted to have a more extensive role in the French delegation, yet Clemenceau ensured that they were subordinated to his authority. Upon Woodrow Wilson's return from the United States, the campaign against the president, but also the premier, increased in temperature. Foch was urged to seize the initiative by his supporters, and he didn't take much convincing. He refused on several occasions to transmit orders from the Council of Four, and he made consistent demands to speak with the French cabinet. The Rhineland, said Foch's military mind, was the only guaranteed way to secure France's future. Clemenceau had agreed, and he had fought for that region tenaciously, but he was certainly in doubt whether he would emerge victorious from this campaign. On the other side, Clemenceau had to deal with Poincaré's supporters, who urged the president to wade into the councils of Paris and be seen to absorb Clemenceau's role. Clemenceau, the president was told, was failing to secure France's future, and was throwing away her advantages in return for useless Anglo-American carrots. It should not surprise us that Clemenceau dealt with these attacks directly, confronting Poincaré in the Elysee Palace in late March. All your friends are against me, Clemenceau had boomed. I have had enough. I am in discussions every day, from morning to night. I am killing myself. When Poincaré responded with, I have never stopped being loyal. That goes without saying, but... Beyond that, I have been devoted, and to say the word, filial. Clemenceau accused him of lying. It was nothing less than a complete blowout between France's most important political figures, and there was a sense that it had been building for some time, but it was probably good for both men to express their feelings rather than keep them bottled up tight. The two left on professional, though certainly not filial, terms. The circumstances are serious, the future is dark, Poincaré said. It is essential that the public officials are united. But in private, when conveying his true thoughts to his diary, Poincaré was far less reserved. In brief, this conversation showed me a Clemenceau who is scatterbrained, violent, conceited, bullying, sneering, dreadly superficial, deaf physically and intellectually, incapable of reasoning, reflecting, of following a discussion. It was a damning portrait of the face of France, but it was also a grim reminder of how intensive the strain on the father of victory had become. Another figure who was feeling the strain was Edward House. While at this point we might have expected House to cleave even closer to Wilson in his time of need, House's diary reflects a stunning turnaround in the President's best friend. It was now apparent, from reading the entries in late March and early April, that former best friend was likely a more apt description of the two men's relationship. It is worth examining what House wrote over these few days to gain a picture of how America's de facto second-in-command in in Paris viewed the peace conference process 
its participants, and the President in particular. House began on the 1st of April with a note that may surprise us, an admission that he had in fact been wrong. How about that? When reflecting upon the rake of diary entries he had submitted and preserved in the past, House noted that he had read through some of them. And he recorded his thoughts on these writings from months ago, saying, At the beginning of this last reading, I noticed I predicted an early peace. I even thought we might be ready as early as the 20th of March to ask the Germans to Versailles. It is now April 1st and we are no further along than we were the day I made this prediction, which was almost a month ago. We have everything in readiness, and our experts have been remarkably intelligent and diligent in preparing what was necessary, but the trouble lies with the Council of Four. They meet day after day and decide nothing. The press is everywhere beginning to berate them, and yet the meetings go on with nothing done. House then recorded his impressions of the four leaders, with an absolutely stunning turnaround in his views regarding the President. This likely reflected House's growing frustration with the unproductive nature of the conference, and of the Council of Four especially, but still, if anything underlines more starkly the change in the President's mood and with his relationship towards those around him, it was House's entry here. Listen out especially for House's flurry at the end. The ticked-off Texan began... Lloyd George is a mischief-maker who changes his mind like a weather vane. He has no profound knowledge of any of the questions with which he is dealing. Orlando is level-headed, but he is handicapped by not speaking English, and by the fact that they are not taking up the questions in which he is interested. Clemenceau is of the old regime. He told Steed yesterday that the President thought himself, another Jesus Christ, come upon the earth to reform men. He is the ablest reactionary in the conference, but it is almost hopeless to try to deal with him except in ways that the world will no longer consider, and which we hope to make forever obsolete. The President is becoming stubborn and angry, and he never was a good negotiator. So there you are. I think the President is becoming unreasonable, which does not make for solutions. Nothing is being run in an orderly way. The Commission to Syria has been appointed and they are still awaiting instructions. There is no one to give the word, and so it is with innumerable other matters. It could be done so easily that it is maddening to see the days go by and nothing decided. Had House lost his patience with Woodrow Wilson? It certainly seems likely. It also speaks to the possibility that Wilson's own dispositions towards his friend had changed since he returned home. Perhaps Wilson blamed House for his poor reception in America, and House had detected this in his president's speech and behaviour. Perhaps Wilson had made no real attempt to hide his irritation. Nonetheless, Wilson evidently still needed his old friend, even if at this point the two were drifting apart. The spat between Wilson and Clemenceau made it essential that the President rely on his close advisers, but rather than face-to-face, House records that in the evening of the 1st of April, the two men spoke over the phone. The call came about 8 o'clock tonight, and we talked for three quarters of an hour over the telephone. We went over the situation from start to finish. The Tsar Basin, the Rhenish Republic, the protection of France, Danzig, Fiume, reparations and what not. He declared that the old man was stubborn and that he could not get him to come to a decision. What he really means is that he cannot get Clemenceau to come to his way of thinking. The phone conversation continued and Wilson continued to pick his friend's brains over the outstanding issues of the day. The line of questioning which followed suggested that Wilson was leaning towards the British, as Lloyd George, of course, hoped that he would be, but it also confirmed that Wilson was not so naive as to imagine that Britain had America's interests always close to heart. Wilson wanted to know what House thought, 
and House told him, complete with some surprisingly frank and stark predictions for what might be in store. The President asked if I thought Lloyd George was being sincere with him. I had my doubts. The general impression is that George is playing him for a rupture with the French. I told the President I could see trouble ahead with Lloyd George. When one talks of the sea, shipping, etc., an Englishman becomes as crazy as a Frenchman when a German is mentioned. He asked to what I referred. I replied, the merchant fleet and the navy building program. He talked as if he would stand firm on both propositions. If he does, he will find that the row he is having with Clemenceau is a frolic compared to that which he will have with Lloyd George. He wishes me to outline to Orlando the boundary and other terms for Italy. I do not relish the job, but I promise to do it. I shall see Orlando on Friday and tell him just where we wish the northern and eastern boundaries of Italy to be. The President tried to get me to admit that the solution which our experts have proposed, and which Clemenceau might be willing to take as to the Tsar Valley, was inconsistent with the 14 points. I replied that there were many who thought otherwise. House outlines the idea for an ultimatum, and records his frustration at the President's lack of consideration for proper note-taking. This is why the initial record of the Council of Four is so patchy, because Sir Maurice Hankey hadn't yet decided to sit at it, nor had he really been asked, and the Big Four talked all over the place rather than set some agenda beforehand and record minutes throughout. This would not properly change into the middle of April, to House's immense chagrin. House recorded his plan. I told the President that I intended to tell Tarju that unless a conclusion was reached within the next ten days that he, the President, would probably go back to America and we would all go with him. I suggested that I use the necessity for calling in special session Congress and passing appropriation bills as the reason why it would be necessary for his early return. I asked him if he had anyone at the Council of Four Meetings who was taking notes. Professor Manteau is there to do the interpreting for Signor Orlando. The President admitted that he thought... Manteau did not like him. He said, Indeed, I am not sure that anybody does. Manteau is a Frenchman having a chair at the London University. I consider the President imprudent and reckless to go into these acrimonious meetings with no member of his own staff there to actually report what goes on. So House saw that the President was imprudent and reckless now? This was a major change from the reverence which House had once viewed his friend. Wilson had gone from well-intentioned, a skilled negotiator, and apparently incapable of doing wrong in House's eyes, to a bad negotiator, an unreasonable man and a foolish statesman all in a few short weeks. If there was ever any clearer evidence that we needed to demonstrate the strain which the conference was having, even on its most hardened diplomatic veterans, then this was it. This literary dynamite notwithstanding, House was not so proud or resentful that he would refuse to take the President's place the next day on the 3rd of April, when the strain became too much. So focused was House on the feuds of the President, and so palpable were his frustrations in dealing with the mess that Wilson had left him, that House never spent much time detailing a significant gathering which had taken place on the 1st of April. It was on that day, the 1st of April, at 3pm in Stephen Pichon's room in the Quai d'Orsay, that another arm of the Allied Conference reached out in a bid to produce some kind of effective result. The Council of Foreign Ministers was a relatively new body, which had gathered only a few days before, to try and absorb some of the responsibilities and paperwork which the Council of Four was then digesting, and which the Council of Ten had not relinquished. The arrival of this new Council of Foreign Ministers coincided almost perfectly with the decline in importance of the Council of Ten. From roughly mid-April 1919 onwards, the two councils, 
of four and of the foreign ministers worked essentially side by side but also separately and independently to try and get as much work done as possible. The Council of Foreign Ministers didn't meet as frequently as the Council of Four, but they did gather right up till the end of June, and they can be seen as a kind of secondary body, charged with solving the problems that the Council of Four could not solve or didn't have the time to address. This body, consisting of the foreign ministers from Britain, France, the United States, Italy and Japan, had the potential to cut in half the work of the Council of Four, and on the 1st of April, they worked to unwrap some of the problems facing a settlement in the East, which, while the leaders of the Council of Four were refusing to talk to one another. In line with trying to reach a settlement in the East, the Czechoslovak Committee frequently came up in the discussions. Let's take a minute to examine these deliberations on the Czechoslovak Committee now, a committee which, don't forget, our own Harold Nicholson had recently devoted a considerable amount of time and energy to. The Council of Foreign Ministers had actually spent much of its time dealing with the International Labour Commission before getting to grips with the main findings of the Czechoslovak Committee, the latter of which were presented by Jules Cambon. The difficulties surrounding imagining Czechoslovakia into being were outlined almost immediately by Cambon here. The committee, Cambon said, had had to consider not merely racial matters when crafting this new state, but also practical issues. For if they neglected to consider questions of geography and security, then Czechoslovakia would be defenceless and doomed before it had even come to life. Hence, Cambon said, the need to include the Sudetenland within the borders of the Czech state. Balfour interjected here, noting that a conclusive decision of the Czech borders would not be possible until the Polish committee had made up their own minds. Cambon agreed to this, but actually went further and noted that neither state could really come into being security and property until both committees sat down together and hammered out their borders. Contentious places like Teschen were the most obvious friction points, but the United States Secretary of State Robert Lansing was wary indeed of any large transfers of Germans into the new Czech state. Cambon said that the transfers of Germans into the Czech state were not numerous. Lansing protested, which provoked something of a rebuke from Jules Cambon, who had just spent the last month wading neck deep into Eastern Europe. He would not now be told by Lansing, who had no genuine understanding of Czech matters, that his work had been unsatisfactory. Cambon said, I had myself heard President Wilson declare that the new states should be set up under conditions which would enable them to survive. The Commission had been entrusted with the task of setting up a new state in Central Europe. This state had perforce an odd shape. Its territory was so narrow as to run the risk of being overrun at the very onset of hostilities. Lansing was not content to let this slide, though, and he challenged Cambon's assertions, saying, I wish to point out that the fixing of frontier lines with a view to their military strength and in contemplation of war was directly contrary to the whole spirit of the League of Nations, of international disarmament, and of the policy of the United States, as set forth in the declarations of President Wilson. Both men had very different views on what Wilson had said and meant. Lansing believed that it was dishonest and unfair to create states based on how well they could defend themselves in war. This would lead to their collapse as the ethnicities pulled them apart, and it was counter to the principle of self-rule. Cambon's retort was based on the premise that war was likely in any theatre of the world, especially when states based solely on ethnicity possessed no natural means of defence and were open to invasion on several fronts. Czechoslovakia would be liable to be picked apart by its neighbours because its neighbours knew that it would be such easy pickings. 
Both men thus wanted the same thing, strategically sound and fair states, but they went about it very differently. Cambon's follow-up is worth detailing though, as the Frenchman noted, If a nation were to be composed strictly according to the national sentiments of each village, the result would be a country as discontinuous as the spots on a panther's skin. Such, I presume, is not the result the conference desired the commission to recommend. The commission had received deputations from many localities requesting the constitution of numberless small republics on the pattern of San Marino and Andorra. I assume that the conference did not wish this tendency encouraged, especially in Central Europe, where national security was not well established. Lansing unhelpfully said that the American delegation's idea for the Czech border was a better one than what the majority in the Czechoslovak Commission had decided. Kambon said that there could well be a better solution, but the Czechoslovak Committee had voted in the majority to accept this latest boundary line in the West. Lansing asked whether plebiscites might be offered to these 90,000 or so Germans who had been left behind. A subordinate of Kambon's then interjected, to note that this was not considered since these Germans represented essentially a pocket in Czech territory. Lansing said that this did not justify an injustice. Cambon held his cool, but he revealed something behind his true motives for not adding every community of Germans to the post-war German state when he replied, On behalf of France, I also have reservations to make. I could not allow Germany to be fortified by populations taken from what had been Austrian dominions taken, moreover, from Bohemia, which, I trust, would remain an ally of France, and handed over to Germany, which, as far as I am concerned, still remained a country to be feared. If America refused to take into account considerations of national defence, France was not in a position to neglect them. Lansing then pointed out that an earlier adjustment of Friedland had provided 60,000 Germans to the new German state, but Pichon, the French foreign minister, put it in himself at this point urging Lansing not to generalise. Cool heads would prevail thanks to the decision to postpone further discussion of the Czech borders until it was learned what the Polish committee had decided. While merely a microcosm in the whirlwind of meetings and consultations, this grilling of Kambon's Czechoslovak committee demonstrated that several differences in policy and perspective existed in the French and American delegations. France, in short, had to consider the implications for her own security and for the sustainability of these new states in the East she was attempting to create. National self-determination was a perfectly nice idea, but strategic concerns were important too, and if some allowances were not made for geography, then the whole project may well be abandoned. Lansing, it seemed, did not wish to compromise on any elements of the self-determination idea, but, as Cambon had pointed out, this would have created a country as discontinuous as the spots on a panther's skin, and it was a valid point. The absolute headache which any demographic map of Eastern Europe presented meant the compromise was an essential ingredient, and Cambon was determined to stand up to Lansing even if the Secretary of State could not see this. While Harold Nicholson's Czechoslovak committee leader was on trial, our man in the Foreign Office had engaged in something of an adventure himself. From the 2nd to the 5th of April 1919, Harold Nicholson resided in the newly Bolshevik Republic of Hungary. Meant ostensibly as a fact-finding mission, where it was hoped the Western Allies would be able to learn more about Hungary, and perhaps use the Bolshevik Hungarian leader, Béla Kuhn, as an intermediary to reach talks with Soviet Russia, the trip also took the form of a simple visit to Budapest, where that city's sites could be taken in. 
Harold Nicholson was eager to see what a Bolshevik state in action looked like, and by his diary, he seems to have been quite excited to arrive. This excitement did not last long, though. Nicholson was not very impressed with Bela Kuhn. A little man of about 30, he wrote. Puffy white face and loose wet lips. Shaven head, impression of red hair, shifty suspicious eyes. He has the face of a sulky and uncertain criminal. Nicholson recorded an incident when he and Jan Smuts, who had led the deputation, walked with Bela Kuhn out of their railway carriage in Budapest. It was then that an engine driver of a suburban train left his engine and advanced towards Kuhn. He said something I did not understand. Kuhn replied with the Magyar equivalent of, Of course, comrade, and held out the stump of a cigarette which he had been smoking. The engine driver then enclosed Kuhn's freckled little podge of a hand in his own black fingers, and he drew a light from that stump. He returns to his engine puffing a proud comradely cigarette. Bela Kuhn darts little pink eyes at me to see whether I am impressed by this proletarian scene or whether I think it ridiculous. I maintain an expression of noble impassivity. We can imagine, purely based on his tone, that Nicholson did find the scene ridiculous and blatantly staged. In spite of Kuhn's upbeat and comradely demeanour, Budapest itself was not a pretty sight, and Nicholson was informed by a British resident in the city that Kuhn had next to no authority outside the city's walls. After Smuts had finally permitted him to exit the train and venture into Budapest proper, Nicholson recorded his impressions of Budapest and the aftermath of its revolution. I had not seen Budapest since I stayed here on my way to Constantinople in 1912. Most of the shops are shut, and it seems even sadder and more unkempt than Vienna. Everything bedraggled, rain pouring on yellow faces and clothes in rags. Groups of red guards going about with hat stands on which they drape presents. We meet three or four of these little groups, generally about 15 or 20 of them armed with bayonets and one of their number carrying a wooden hat stand stolen from some restaurant. If they find a shop, they go in and take presents which they hang on the hat stand. Boots, sausages, red underclothes. All of this in soaking rain. No other signs of revolution or Bolshevism except a universal sadness and shabbiness. Over the next few hours and into the next day, Nicholson and Smuts came to accept that Bela Kuhn was not as securely fastened to the helm of Hungary as he might have imagined. Visitors on board the British train from Swiss or Spanish delegations informed Nicholson that Kuhn had locked up thousands in the prisons and that he was constantly being dictated to by Moscow. On the morning of the 5th of April, Bela Kuhn returned to meet the deputation and was presented with an offer agree to a neutral demilitarized zone between Hungary and Romania, and the blockade of Hungary would be lifted. It is clear that Bela Kuhn longs to accept it, Nicholson observed, but he is suspicious and afraid. Clasping the document, he leaves us, saying he must consult his cabinet. This means he must consult Moscow. At this, Jan Smuts informed Nicholson that, whatever transpired, they would be leaving Budapest that evening at 7pm. Once more, Jan Smuts permitted Nicholson and some of his peers to enter into the city centre, and once again, Nicholson recorded a vivid and menacing image of life under Bolshevism, which is worth detailing in full. Nicholson wrote, Our officers say that Bela Kuhn wishes to offer us tea. This is awkward, as I do not think the general, Smuts, would like us to enter a hotel, but the officers look so frightened when we refuse that we do agree. 
It is clear from the moment that we enter the hotel that it is a put-up job, carefully staged to impress us. The foyer of the hotel is full of people having lemonade and coffee at little tables. An orchestra plays Hungarian tunes. It has all been arranged to show us that even under Bolshevism, Budapest remains the gayest city in Central Europe. But two serious mistakes have been made. In the first place, there are red guards at all the doors with fixed bayonets. And in the second place, they omitted to tell the people at the tables that they must make conversation with one another. It is a curious effect. It is some time before I realise what is wrong. It all looks very like the tea hour at any continental hotel. But there is something uncanny about it, and unreal. Then it suddenly dawns upon me that each single table is absolutely silent. Not a word do they address to each other as they sip their lemonade. If one looks up suddenly, one catches countless frightened eyes, and at the back of those eyes, a mutely passionate appeal. Then the eyes flick away towards the lemonade, and this ghastly silence continues under the wail of the violins and under the gaze of the sentries guarding every exit. It is quite clear that these huddled, silent people have been let out of the prisons for the afternoon in order to fill the foyer of the Hotel Hungaria. I shudder and feel cold. We leave as soon as possible. Silent eyes search out at us as we go, our voices sounding loudly to the door. Sheep in a thunderstorm. In spite of Bailakun's efforts, Nicholson was evidently not fooled, and nor was his superior prepared to compromise. That evening, when they were mere minutes from leaving, Bela Kuhn swanned up to their carriage with a counter-proposal to the earlier offer. Bela Kuhn, Nicholson writes, was completely unaware that by that point, Jan Smuts had essentially given up on him and did not believe him worth any kind of compromise. Perhaps Jan Smuts could see into the not-too-distant future, where Bela Kuhn's regime would collapse in August of that year, only a few months away. Or perhaps Smuts could see into the even nearer future, when Bela Kuhn would order invasions of Slovakia to take the focus off his failing regime. Either way, the Hungarians were left stunned on the platform as Smuts absorbed Kuhn's impossible proposal and then withdrew to his carriage without presenting another counteroffer as diplomatic protocol dictated. Smuts did not care for such protocol though, because he did not care for Bela Kuhn or his impossibly unstable regime. As a result, the British sped home and Kuhn was denied any semblance of a propaganda victory. Returning in Paris on Wednesday the 9th of April, Harold Nicholson would record that Smuts's Hungarian escapade had been condemned as a fiasco, and while Nicholson agrees, he reasoned that it was not the fault of the South African general, since the whole mission was obscure and illogical from the beginning. Those two adjectives could in fact be used to describe every Allied attempt to deal with the Bolsheviks so far, be it in the public effort to host a conference of Russian leaders at Prinkipo, debates over the extent of Allied military intervention, or the curious incident of William Bullitt's deputation in March. With Hungary in the rearview mirror, Nicholson took a badly needed bath when he got home and returned to the boxes of paperwork from the foreign office, which had accumulated in his absence. Only the day before... The American president had also returned to work in Paris on the 8th of April, having recovered from his collapse and resumed his seat on the Council of Four. The first week of April 1919 had been a week of intensive debates and incredible variety. But facing into the second week of the month, there was no sign that matters would change any time soon. The next item on the agenda, it was said, was a proposal from the largely silent Japanese, one could only imagine what the Japanese were about to present to the council, but judging by their determination and care, it was easy to imagine that the Western Allies were not 
going to like it. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.